this morning's passage, if you're not familiar with where we are in the book of Luke, and I don't have time to, to get into and expand out into all that's happened for 18 chapters now, but, but I do want to zoom in and acknowledge that, that this story that we're about to look at finds itself right after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, a man self-confident in his religious devotion, a man self-reliant in his wealth and possessions, having nets, so to speak, that he wasn't willing to leave behind, clinging to his wealth and losing the kingdom, reminding us that money and possessions have a way of convincing a person of his or her own self-sufficiency. No need for childlike faith, dependence, and trust in the Lord when you have in your mind everything you need right in front of you. What does Jesus say to the, the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It should come as no surprise to us that, that the passage to follow the story of the rich young ruler would present us with the story of a wretched, pitiable, poor, blind man. A man who, whose only hope is self-abandoning trust in a sufficient Jesus, believing that what is impossible with man, chapter 18, verse 27, is absolutely possible with God. As you pick up the story in verse 31, Luke tells us, And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. It's the third time in Luke's gospel account that Jesus foretells of his impending death and resurrection, the cross and empty tomb to come, the fulfillment of the words of the prophets of old. Jesus' disciples, they, they struggle to accept it, to make sense of it. As I've said before, we see that all the way up to the very last chapter, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, distraught, devastated, disoriented, Luke tells us that at this point in the story, verse 34, they understood none of these things. The saying, it was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said, what Jesus was saying. Which might provoke the question, why would Jesus tell the twelve something he knew would be hidden from them? We're not told explicitly, perhaps Perhaps so that they would understand uh, in the aftermath of the crucifixion and, and resurrection having taken place. The scales removed. Remember, we're, we're about to look at the story of a blind beggar here. The scales removed someday soon, looking back on these words of Jesus, grasping their significance on the other side of the empty tomb. Helps to explain something of the story that follows, if that is in fact what's going on here. As you have this providential collision with with the destitute and, and the divine. Verse 35. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. At this point in Luke's gospel account, Jesus has spent quite a bit of time in a pretty rural area known as Galilee kind of area where if somebody asks you where you're from, you probably float out the county name rather than the city itself. Now on his way, Jesus is to a city, the city of Jerusalem, where he'll soon be mocked, flogged, and crucified. At this point in the story, uh, we know on the basis of the calendar, um, 
that this was during a time in which the roads were jam-packed with travelers, the season of Passover, time of celebration for the Jewish people. For those who, who may not be quite as familiar, Passover is, is the celebration of, of God's rescue of the Israelites out of the arms of Egyptian enslavement and bondage. Looking back to the day when God brought a series of plagues on Egypt, culminating in the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn, very famous part of the Old Testament. God said to Moses, I want you to have my people take a lamb, one for each household, and not just any lamb, but a lamb without blemish or spot. And I want you to tell them that they're to kill that lamb and spread its blood on their door with the unblemished lamb acting as their substitute. Judgment, it's coming on the land. No one is exempt. It's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of the firstborn, both man and beast. And as the story goes, we're told that the Israelites did as, as God commanded. And that night, God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose door wasn't covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. It's the night that the Israelites were, were spared as death passed over them, hence the name Passover, setting the stage for God's people to leave those shackles of Egypt behind. And with that, the institution of the annual celebration known by the same name, the Passover celebration commemorating the story of Israel's redemption. Both the story of the Passover itself and the, the ensuing annual celebration setting the stage for the coming Messiah. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. John proclaims Jesus to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter declares that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That as in the story of the Passover, God's judgment will soon come as Jesus has declared numerous times over in Luke's gospel account at this point. And that on that day, no one will be exempt any more than anyone was exempt back in the days of the Exodus. As none of us is without sin, deserving of sin's curse of death. That it's either the unblemished lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the glorious hope of substitutionary atonement which is where the story of Luke's headed, for it's us standing before the Lord someday giving account. The unblemished lamb Jesus would go on to die in the place of sinners, bearing our sin, bearing our penalty, bearing our punishment. He bled and died so that we, like the Israelites, could go free. That as God saw the blood of the lamb on the door of the Israelite homes and passed over them, so God sees the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, poured out for us and passes over us. That's the backdrop of this story, okay? Keep that in mind. Coming back to this morning's passage, the streets, they're congested with people traveling to this city of Jerusalem in mass to celebrate this, this, this annual gathering known as the Passover feast. Probably the first century equivalent of I-75 on a holiday weekend, or the city of Atlanta all the time. Jericho, this, this rest stop on the journey, you could say. Place for the kids to go to the restroom, place to gas up the camel, an exit that has a Chick-fil-A. That's where, that's where we are. It's a great place to post up with a will work for, for food sign. It helps to make sense as to why there's a blind man sitting on the roadside begging. And, and we're told that the, the blind man hears a crowd go by. 
That's not strange. It's the time of the Passover celebration. And yet, he recognizes that there's something different about this particular crowd, something about the sound of it all that strikes him as unusual, as unique. And so he asks, what's going on here? And they told him, verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Here you have this blind beggar, this man who due to his blindness is likely without a job, impoverished, perhaps even homeless, incapable of doing anything to better his situation, absolutely destitute and in need of divine intervention, which is pretty providential because God incarnate happens to get off the interstate at his very exit. All right, think about that. Think about your story and the providence of God and his work in your own life. If you're a Christian, that you're on the inside of this thing we call Christianity, that alone, we could stop the story right there and just marvel at God's kindness and grace and mercy to us. God incarnate happens to get off the interstate at this man's very exit. And clearly, this man has heard of Jesus this is not his first encounter. He doesn't start asking questions as to who, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? What, 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 what's with all the noise? What's with all the hubbub? No, he cries out, verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The, the man immediately proceeds to make an absolute fool of himself. Have mercy on me, Jesus. If you and I had been there, we, we probably would have been embarrassed for the guy, perhaps even ignoring his antics and passing right by Jesus. Think about this, on our way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, oblivious to the fact that the true Passover lamb is right in front of our face, right in front of our very eyes. So a lesson, as has been the case throughout the book of Luke for the religious types. You have this massive crowd of people with physical eyesight and yet a failure to see. And in contrast, you have this guy with absolutely no eyesight whatsoever seeing Jesus Christ. And he responds the way anyone who's seen Jesus for who he truly is should respond. It's appropriate. He makes a complete fool of himself. He just doesn't care. He can't help himself. Like the once leprous Samaritan back in chapter 17, not too far back in this series through the book of Luke, who ran to Jesus and fell at his feet in humble gratitude while the other nine kept going in the other direction. Like the sinful woman forgiven back in chapter 7, who fell at the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and kissed them. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 39. And everyone else followed suit and fell on their faces and embarrassed themselves in love for Christ and acknowledgement of their desperation. And that's not what it says. And those who were in front rebuked him, this man, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? The people tell him to pipe down, stop embarrassing yourself, stop disrupting everything. Around you. And he promptly responds by making a fool of himself a second time over. In the spirit of the persistent widow, chapter 18, verse 3. Son of David, have mercy on me. In this case, crying out not like the widow for justice, but for mercy. 
son of David, a declaration of the messianic kingship of Jesus. If you remember the story, David went from shepherd boy to king of Israel. And when David became king, God made a covenant with him. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the more famous passages of the Old Testament, where God promised David an eternal throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. We know, we know this to be a, a messianic promise because the earliest words of Luke's gospel account declare as much. You may recall the, the angel Gabriel coming to, to Mary to foretell the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, where we're told he said, And do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, here it is, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There's a messianic king coming. His kingdom shall be everlasting. Coming back to this morning's passage, God's people, they've been longing for this king to show up on the scene in the midst of Roman tyranny and oppression. Where is this promised king? Is he ever going to come? And a disheveled blind man on the side of the road declares, he's right here, son of David. He's right in front of you. It's really quite astonishing. How many of us would have looked at this man like he was crazy? And yet, though physically blind, he's the one in the crowd seeing everything rightly. And with that, he makes a dangerous statement during this moment in history in which Rome was in full power. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. That's the appropriate cry. And a blind guy on the side of the road declares there's a new king in town and he's far greater than Caesar. This is crazy. This is how God chose to announce the eternal kingship of Jesus. It's not a great marketing campaign in the eyes of the world. Okay, everybody huddle in. Here's what we're going to do to get the word out. We're going to have a blind, disheveled roadside beggar shouted at the top of his lungs. You know what happens when that's your campaign strategy? You get fired from your job. And yet, a couple thousand years later, here we are continuing to worship Jesus as he's worshiped throughout the world. The upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. We're told in verse 40, the story goes on, Jesus stopped and commanded the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine Jesus standing before you and asking you that question? What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer a question like that? Would your answer reveal something of your love for Christ? Would it reveal something of your love for the world? Maybe a mixture. And the man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I can't even attempt to try to put myself in the shoes of a man like this. 
I don't know about you, it's hard for me to try to get into this story. There are other stories that are a little bit easier for me to get into, particularly those that, that press on a fluency and a love for wealth and possessions. Yeah, I can make sense of the rich young ruler. I get that one. Trying to step into the shoes of a man that we're not told for sure, but perhaps was born blind, at least had been blind long enough that he found himself destitute and on the roadside with a, a sign asking for help. After who knows how many years of seeing nothing but darkness, as we all, only a few hours of being awake this day, have seen the beauty of the sun, seen it shining on the leaves, the trees around us. We've seen the yellow of pollen, and that's grace. This man, After who knows how long, in an instant, I can see. And to go even further, amazingly, the first thing he sees is what? The face of Jesus Christ. What an incredible moment it must have been. To go from seeing nothing to seeing the most valuable being in all of the universe. The one who made the sun. And it's beams. The one who made pollen and for good reason. The one who made those leaves off of which the the sun could reflect and give the glow and beauty of it all. Heaven's king. This is one of those moments, because I have a harder time understanding it from the inside, that I look forward to one day meeting this guy. He's, he's one of, the, of those on a, on a short list that I will happily stand in line for to get my cup of coffee and him, hear him tell this moment from his perspective. And not just the healing of his physical sight as there's something much bigger than, than a physical healing taking place here. Your faith has made you well, Jesus says. It's the same exact phrase verbatim in the Greek found in two earlier stories in this very same book of the Bible. The story of the forgiven woman who I mentioned just a moment ago in the house of Simon the Pharisee, chapter 7, where Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And then there's the story of the the once leprous Samaritan who turned back, chapter 17, where Jesus said, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's the language of salvation. Literally, in the Greek, your faith has saved you. Again, I can't help but but be drawn back to the the story of the men in chapter 5 who dropped their paralytic friend through a roof in order to bring him to the feet of Jesus. So that when Jesus saw their faith, we're told, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Not only an astonishing declaration, but a greater gift, the greatest gift, in fact. A public declaration that that Jesus' kingdom work is not solely having to do with healings and exorcisms, circumstantial fixes, but the deliverance of souls, more than that, from the darkness and blindness of sin. That this imagery takes us further than a physical healing. We're told in verse 43, and immediately this man recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying him. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Where the rich 
young ruler clung to his wealth and lost the kingdom. Here we see the once blind beggar cling to Christ and gain the kingdom. A man happy to leave his nets, so to speak. The once blind beggar, he, he sees God's mercy to him in the face of Jesus Christ. And his response is, Jesus, you're going to have to pry me from your hip. Loyalty, fidelity, and attaching of oneself to. That's what the gospel does. That's what a, a new heart empowered by the Spirit longs for. I couldn't see. I was groping in the dark for something to give me hope. And everything left me wanting. And then Jesus. Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. I would ask. This morning, have you seen the light? Maybe today is the day of salvation, the day to cry out like the blind beggar. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I came in today standing with the crowd, rebuking things like this. On the outside looking in. Perhaps today is the day to repent of your sins and trust in the true Passover lamb. For the forgiveness and salvation that can only be found in him. And if you are a Christian, in one sense, this is one of the harder stories for us to get on the inside of. And yet at the same time, there's an aspect in which it's very easy for us to get to, to the inside of a story like this. Because if you're a Christian, you know something of this great miracle of illumination. I've alluded to these verses already. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, here it is, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us, God has, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Or my favorite of all three, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness in the creation story, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That when you became a Christian, whether you realize it or not, you had a Jericho Road experience. It's part of your story that Jesus is Brightness shined on the retina of your human soul and you went from blind, disheveled, impoverished outcast groping in the dark for something to hope in to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of David. The gospel, it's not a message of self-sufficiency. It's a message of spiritual blindness apart from the radiant light of Jesus Christ. Another way we could say it, in Christ, God has made a way for the blind to see and savor him forever. We have reason to give thanks and praise this morning in response to the eyes that we've been given to see and savor the glory of Christ. 
like the once blind beggar who followed Jesus, glorifying God, like the once leprous Samaritan who turned back, chapter 17, praising God with the same loud voice that had grown accustomed to shouting, unclean, unclean, using those same worn out lungs to declare, look what God has done. Like the sinful woman, chapter 7, forgiven, caught up in an act of extravagant love and worship, which is what extravagant healing and forgiveness compels. In the words of one scholar, I mentioned this last week, the week before, we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. It's one of the kindnesses of the Lord's day that we keep coming back and doing this. Every seven days, in spaces like these, reminded of the great miracle of what God's done in our own lives, of the work of his sovereign grace. Reminded not just as we reflect inwardly, but as we look around the room and see it in the faces of other people who too are walking miracles, who have been brought out of blindness and given sight alongside of us, that we can see and savor the glory of Christ together as a community He's worthy of our song, the song of a life lived in humble gratitude and outspoken praise. And when we see that the disconnect become more of a connect, it's compelling to the world around us. As you see in the final verse, verse 43 of this morning's passage, all the people, when they saw when they saw what had happened, when they saw Jesus, when they saw this great miracle, they gave praise to God. 